The team and I here at One Decision are extremely sad to learn of the death of three journalists killed in Ukraine this week. Our condolences to the family and friends of Brent Renault, Pierre Zakshevsky and Alexandra Kushinova, and our thoughts are with Ben Hall, who is recovering after being wounded in the field. Welcome to One Decision, the show where we speak to people behind some of the key decisions that have shaped our world. Tavi Roivas was Prime Minister of Estonia from March 2014 to November 2016, assuming office at the age of 35. At the time, he was the youngest world leader in the European Union. Estonia is also a young country. Having been repeatedly occupied by historic empires, Estonia declared post-war independence before being occupied by the Soviet Union. Estonia regained its sovereignty in 1991, along with other former Soviet states. From its rebirth in the early 90s, Estonia, under its forward-thinking leadership, embraced the internet and global connectivity. An early success story in Skype, the video communication service, was to be repeated by many startups in Estonia. It's now one of the most highly technologically advanced states, is host to NABO's Cyber Center of Excellence and was the first government in the world to go digital. But as with many Baltic states, there is remaining anxiety about the behavior of neighboring Russia. Roivas was central in lobbying NATO to send a forward presence in its east, deploying troops in Baltic states back in 2014. Tavi Roivas sat down with us just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine that began on February 24th, but he knew it was something that was not just possible this time around, but an ever-present threat for all countries that were formerly occupied by the Soviet Union. He began by telling us why. First of all, uh, uh, Russia sees uh, uh, its neighbours somewhat differently as the rest of the world, whereas all the democratic countries uh, uh, see and recognize every country's um, right for sovereignty and every country's, including Ukraine's and, and of course, including uh, um, all other European countries, sovereignty to, to choose their own uh, destiny, be it uh, uh, whatever alliance they, they choose to uh, pursue for. Uh, now, Russia sees uh, spheres of inter uh, interest and, and they think, uh, or, or he thinks in, in Kremlin that uh, that it is possible or uh, also in the 22nd uh, century influence uh, uh, what uh, the neighboring countries uh, should think or, or can think. Uh, one very important uh, aspect, of course, is that uh, I don't think it is uh, uh, justified to call any country uh, a former Soviet uh, country because the uh, Soviet Union uh, occupied a lot of uh, independent countries uh, during Second World War, and, and it was uh, not recognized by, by the West or, or by the democratic um, uh, countries. So it's, it's very important to, to understand that we are talking about destinies of uh, uh, independent countries here, not, uh, not the influential uh, spheres, as, as Putin might see it. Uh, that, that, that's fair. You talk about spheres of influence and spheres of interest. Um, in those states that Russia previously had occupied. And obviously there are Russian interests across Europe. There are large uh, Russian-speaking populations in many countries. And 
obviously what Vladimir Putin wants is allies, allies that he doesn't really tend, doesn't really have uh, in a way that the Soviet Union had had allies around the world. Vladimir Putin is not in a similar situation. And so when you see him being aggressive towards a lot of a lot of Russia's neighbors and a lot of countries in Europe. What exactly is he trying to do? Is he trying to protect or regain or control these spheres of of interest, spheres of influence? Or do you think he actually wants to invade? Do you think he wants to add a lot of countries back into into Russia? Well, I don't think it's actually possible to pursue uh, this kind of goal, even in, in his uh, his mindset. And uh, and I, I don't also agree that uh, having somebody uh, speaking your language in in a country that is neighboring or or in Kensington, for that matter, uh, that doesn't give you any any right to to possess uh, ownership or, or of that uh, district, for example. So, and uh, I think it's. Uh, Right that uh, every country, be it Ukraine, be it uh, UK, be it Estonia, uh, has its own right uh, to choose whether they want to uh, form alliances with uh, with Russia, which, uh, as we see, has happened uh, under the current uh, regime uh, of of Lukashenko, for example, and of course, a lot of um, lot of people in the country. Uh, dispute that, and, and uh, it's not the democratic uh, process that is going on there. But the most of the neighbors of Russia, for some reason, have opted for other uh, uh, values, uh, more European values. And, and what I can speak uh, from Estonian experience, I think uh, being occupied uh, by Soviet Union for 50 years uh, left uh, left uh, this wish for Estonian people to get as far as possible from from this kind of uh, uh, repressed society. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the demands that Russia made back in December last year. Uh, for our listeners, I'll just read out... Um, the, the the demands that the Kremlin made in order for de-escalation in Ukraine. Russia wants an end to NATO military activity in Eastern Europe, including U- Ukraine, the Caucasus and Central Asia. No expansion of NATO membership, particularly to Ukraine. No intermediate or short-range missiles deployed close enough to hit the territory of the other side. No military exercises of more than one military brigade in an agreed border zone. An agreement that parties do not see each other as adversaries and will resolve disagreements peacefully. And lastly, neither Russia nor the United States can deploy nuclear weapons outside their national territories. Quite a long list of demands. What do you make of that? <laughs> yes, and, and at the same time, uh, we know that there are many European uh, and NATO capitals that are in the range of uh, Russian missiles. So, uh, you know, are they willing to... Uh, uh, take their missiles uh, further away from uh, their borders? Well, I, I kind of doubt that. But uh, but uh, let's keep in mind that... I mean, is this a serious list to you? Do you think this is, is a serious uh, list no, from no, Vladimir most, Putin? No, most or? of it... I mean, uh, it could be serious if we would think, as he thinks, that uh, that uh, there should be like... Uh, um, like Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, secret pacts uh, also in the year 2022. But of course, we don't think like that. We don't think that uh, we can or should decide uh, over Ukrainian uh, head whether 
they could uh, someday uh, want uh, or pursue for uh, for NATO membership. This is not something we should uh, we should like forbid them as as an option in the in the future. Uh, even more absurd is to tell that uh, that NATO should not have uh, weapons on its own territories. Estonia is uh, NATO territory. Uh, Denmark is NATO territory. Norwegia is NATO territory. So saying that we should not have any any weapons or what whatever kind of weapons in these territories would mean that okay, but then Russia should not have any uh, long range missiles in Kaliningrad near St. Petersburg because they are all uh, in the range of of European uh, countries or European capitals. So and, and we know for sure that this is not something that. Russia would be ready to consider, at least in the foreseeable future. And if we remember what happened in 2014, it was not, uh, at least according to to Russian uh, uh, government TV or national TV, it was not Russia who was attacking Ukraine. It was the Americans who were involved in, in their opinion. So, so I mean, it's uh, they they can still uh, uh, pose ridiculous claims. Uh, um, that come out of the blue. Uh, that, that was the, the point why I why I said that. Uh, now, um, what what are the goals of Putin? Um, well, at least what I see is that uh, often um, uh, his measures or or his moves are counterproductive. Uh, obviously, currently many European countries uh, have started thinking about energy security. Many of European countries. Uh, um, have seen uh, uh, on their own territory uh, hybrid tools being used. And I, I'm not sure if it has been helping Putin's goals. Uh, I think they, it, most probably these things have been counterproductive. And, and we have seen a lot of, uh, lot of European projects that are actually uh, reducing the, the uh, dependence on Russian uh, resources, uh, including my own country. We built a few years back... Uh, uh, interconnector uh, of gas uh, to Finland, and and uh, it's not possible to to um, um, de-link de- uh, either Estonia or Finland separately from uh, from gas supplies. So we have achieved uh, much more independence uh, because of that. And and I, this is something I, I wish other countries uh, would would do as well. Right, you. Uh, you mentioned 2014, and I would like to revisit the situation in Ukraine in 2014, because that was the year that you became prime minister of, of Estonia uh, in March 2014, uh, I believe. And so there was quite a lot going on uh, at that time. I mean, we had the Euromaidan protests starting in, in late 2013. And the month before you became prime minister, that was when we saw those huge clashes in Kiev. We had those incredibly dramatic uh, events where President Yanukovych fled the capital and you had protesters storming and, and occupying government buildings. You had Yulia Tymoshenko released from jail. And then you had the start of those little green men uh, popping up in Crimea and Simferopol. 
taking control uh, of Crimea. So I just want to go back to your first days in office um, because it must have been a storm for you uh, to, to come in. Well, I, I do remember uh, exactly what I felt when it happened. Uh, we had uh, still the uh, coalition negotiations and uh, the chairman of the coalition partner, uh, Social Democrats, uh, he was uh, about to become uh, the Minister of Defence and I was about to become the Prime Minister. And I remember our delegations uh, debating heavily on the final issues that had nothing to do with uh, with the security or defence issues. So they were just like uh, ordinary coalition um, um, negotiations ongoing. And we both looked at, at my... My colleagues, uh, iPad, uh, what happened? What was happening in the international news, and, and of course, uh, that uh, basically held a, a strong, um, a strong change for our agenda. We didn't uh, plan for uh, for getting uh, national defense and security issues as as the top of my first government that worked uh, until the um, March of two thousand fifteen. But uh, because of the international situation, this was exactly what happened. And, and of course, we worked together with EU and NATO to increase the presence of NATO allies in our region. That was actually among the very first tasks uh, uh, my government took uh, upon ourselves. Uh, my first visit as prime minister was not to Latvia or Finland. That is the usual uh, way to do uh, or, or a usual um, uh, way that the student presidents and prime ministers work, uh, but it was to Brussels to meet um, NATO Secretary General and, and uh, EU Commission and, and other EU colleagues. So, so that that was clearly uh, because of of the security situation in Europe uh, worsening in in uh, March uh, considerably. You were Prime Minister during the NATO-Warsaw Summit in 2016, and that was a particularly interesting year because there was a... There was emerging this arc of instability and insecurity across NATO borders. You had the invasion of Crimea back in 2014. And then you also had the rise of ISIS taking swathes of territory in Iraq and Syria, uh, Mosul falling uh, to ISIS in June 2014. You had the Paris attacks um, in 2015. You had the EU migrant crisis sweeping across EU borders. Uh, all of this was high on the agenda back then. And the upshot of that summit was that NATO would deploy a battalion in each of the Baltic states uh, and Poland. And that was the enhanced forward presence units. Uh, however, at the time, Estonia said that this deployment was not sufficient enough to protect indefinitely uh, against Russian aggression. So back in 2016, at that last NATO summit, what was the atmosphere like? How highly charged was it? How much did you feel there was possibly an... Uh, an, an imminent threat of escalation and 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 national security. Well, I think uh, it was not as tense uh, as it was in 2014. Uh, in 2014, it took some discussions among NATO leaders uh, whether uh, sending uh, troops is is the right answer or other alternatives. In 2016, it was crystal clear to to all of NATO leaders that. Uh, that we should have a permanent uh, presence of allied troops uh, in the Baltic countries and in Poland, 
to send a clear message. And uh, and of course, but but you did have but you did have in 2016. You had Petro Poroshenko was warning of an imminent Russian invasion into Ukraine. Well, by 2016, they had already attacked Ukraine. Uh, I mean, uh, we we had seen and and uh, now more more also general public has seen uh, footage of uh, of. Uh, Weapons and and the troops crossing the border and and, and uh, it's it's quite clear that a lot of troops used in eastern Ukraine were not not there before uh, the conflict emerged. Thus, they had to come across the border. So it's kind of uh, kind of no brainer in, in this context. So yes, uh, 2015 and 16 remained tense in in Ukrainian context. But uh, as I said, uh, European response uh, uh, or, or NATO re- response regarding uh, presence in in, um, in Baltic countries and, and Poland uh, was uh, was something that uh, was to be expected, I would say, and, and there was no no real debate about it. And also, actually, one thing that uh, should be also remembered from that particular Warsaw summit is that uh, NATO started. Or started is a wrong word, but uh, NATO decided that cyber is a separate domain and uh, gave cyber defense a lot of more uh, priority. And this is also something that uh, it is quite um, much more uh, probable uh, to be used in in NATO or EU countries. Uh, as a tool or as a weapon, uh, so so this is something it is also very acute to prepare for and and to take cyber threats uh, very seriously. Well, I mean that brings me on very nicely to one aspect of Estonia I did want to talk to you about, which is it's Estonia's cyber capabilities and it's very very sort of high tech approach, not just to to security, but governments and, and all, all aspects of public life. To cybersecurity first, um, there was an interesting study a couple of years ago by the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, and they did this study into Russian disinformation in uh, efforts in the Baltics. And they found that Russia primarily interferes in the democratic processes of Baltic states, such as Estonia, using information means or sort of disinformation influence campaigns. And what they have tried to do is that they have tried to push through both traditional and social media narratives which are designed to divide people who are ethnically Russian or Russian speakers from the rest of society. Uh, They want to undermine domestic political stability and eventually break the Baltic commitment to the EU and NATO. Tell me a little about that fight that that you have in Estonia and how you assess that risk and what Russia tries to do in terms of trying to destabilize your democracy and, and how Estonia handles that threat? Well, I think uh, this uh, particular uh, description is, is greatly exaggerated because uh, Estonia and, and Latvia and Lithuania are all uh, very well vaccinated uh, against the Russian propaganda. We uh, remember uh, Soviet propaganda, we can uh, understand what it is, we can recognize it, and it, it's much uh, more difficult to, to influence us. Uh, now, regarding um, political uh, political uh, uh, goals, I think uh, 
most uh, easy to see uh, what uh, Russia would benefit from uh, leads us to to also the uh, areas where they tried to influence uh, European politics. And, and, uh, and probably it's not a coincidence that uh, that a lot of um, uh, those parties who are anti-European, um, parties like uh, who are, uh, let's say, uh, nationalist in, in, in Europe, they also tend to be uh, either openly or closely uh, pro-Russian. Uh, sometimes they are not even openly pro-Russian, but you can find NGOs or, or partners uh, that are very close to them, that are also very close to uh, or have Russian ties, let's put it this way. So uh, what it doesn't matter if the topic uh, that uh, helps them uh, to tear uh, the society apart is uh, migrants or is it uh, minority rights. Uh, I think uh, from Putin's perspective uh, or from the Kremlin perspective, it's, it's all the same. The, the goal is to uh, undermine unity. Uh, the, the goal is to weaken um, the European societies. And uh, in a way, what has been succeeding is that in many countries we have parties that uh, that uh, uh, are advocating uh, those topics that actually, let's say, weaken the, the society. Of course, one of the topics is also uh, that is kind of no-brainer uh, where, where it's easy to fuel uh, potential conflicts or disagreements among uh, people in democratic countries is, of course, uh, the resp right response to COVID. Yeah, you, can, you can, any topic basically that, uh, that uh, you discuss with your family in the Christmas table and, and that can uh, make you disagree so much that, you know, somebody wants to leave, any, any this kind of topic uh, would be ideal for Putin to, to support and, and to fuel either through NGOs or, or directly. Right. Well, you say that Estonia is vaccinated against disinformation, but tell me that how does this sort of manifest in Estonia? They, do you have a, a UKIP or a Front National that is divisive, that has you know sharpened div the, the divides in, in the national debate and has also links with Russian donors? Do you have that in Estonia? Like how is, how is Estonia sort of inured to, to that situation? Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, I think uh, if something like that, uh, uh, like information of some party or some politician being either directly or indirectly uh, financed uh, by uh, Russian regime, if that something like that would come out in Estonia, it would be basically very clearly the end of this uh, particular politician or, or party, uh, or at least the beginning of an end, because this is something that is not okay uh, uh, in Estonia, clearly. The same is, is, for example, just to bring you an example, it's not possible uh, to establish a successful communist party in Estonia, because we know what communism brought to Estonia uh, during 50 years, and, and it's just not something you could play with. Whereas in in some European countries where the history has been different, there are communist parties and, and it's not as much of a red, uh, red flag. In Estonian society, being influenced uh, by Kremlin would be a huge red flag. Right. It, things are a little different in this country. We take the sons of KGB officers and we elevate them to the House of Lords. So there's one way that Britain is different from Estonia. Um, 
The last question I want to ask you about cyber is Estonia was hit with a massive cyber attack back in 2007, and that was eventually attributed to Russia. Uh, it disabled government websites, it disabled bank websites and business websites. And it was the first time, really, that an entire country was targeted at, at such a scale. Um, and it's also the main reason, really, why the NATO, co- the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence uh, was very quickly established there in the capital Tallinn the very next year in, in 2008. Uh, so that was obviously before your time in, in government. But, but talk to me about how Estonia's cybersecurity defences have evolved since then and, and how, how much of a historical event was that first cyber attack? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I, I do remember it very well. I was a newly elected member of parliament when, when it happened. And, uh, and I think, again, this was something uh, where probably the attacker didn't uh, uh, plan for Estonia to uh, become as resilient as we have become uh, in cyber and actually build a huge strength uh, for ourselves uh, from this experience. So in a way, we can also say that that also that attack uh, was uh, counterproductive uh, uh, for the attacker and, and uh, in a way in long run it was actually uh, beneficial for Estonia if you can put it this way. Now what we learned uh, uh, and, and what we are continuing to learn uh, together with uh, NATO allies and, and uh, external partners in the in the center of excellence that uh, as you correctly said was established in Tallinn is uh, that we need to constantly exercise against uh, this kind of uh, threats uh, and this is something uh, uh, that um, uh, the Center of Excellence is, is organizing. And also cyber exercises are part of all uh, bigger uh, military exercises that Estonia uh, holds. Uh, and also uh, a lot of uh, work that has been done jointly by NATO allies and, and partners in the Center of Excellence is, is about legal uh, uh, issues, how to attribute uh, something, what would be the uh, proper uh, proportional or, or disproportional or, or what, whatever kind of uh, response would be appropriate, let's put it this way. So this kind of... Uh, that, I mean, that must be difficult when attribution is so difficult when you have a lot of these like non-state actors and these sort of murky uh, groups that are sort of semi or unofficially or deniably uh, taking orders or not exactly. from various parts of 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 Russian government, right. Can you tell me what are cyber exercises? What do they entail exactly? Well, uh, there are different cyber exercises, but uh, uh, one way of doing it is is having uh, a cyber range where you mimic uh, either information systems uh, or you build uh, in a closed uh, circuit uh, similar systems that, for example, your banks or or even electricity uh, stations or, or whatever critical infrastructure might have, uh, you, you build a replica of, of these uh, in a closed uh, environment. And then you have one team attacking them and one team uh, uh, defending them. Or, of course, for that matter, you can have several teams on, on either side. So that, that would be one possible way of doing that. Estonia has uh, uh, different uh, ranges, both uh, in the public sector and also uh, uh, some uh, Estonian IT companies have also private uh, cyber ranges so that these kind of exercises are not only easy to organize, but also they are quite um, uh, easy uh, to follow. 
uh, I have been following several cyber exercises and uh, and it's really good if you if you can see what is happening you can understand also what kind of threats uh, you need to take into consideration when you build your own critical ICT system. That's so fascinating. Cyber ranges, like cyber shooting ranges. Because I was going to ask if, if any of those exercises were offensive as well as defensive. And that sounds like like you do sort of simulate attacks and that I, f- I find that fascinating do you uh, uh do you hire like former <laughs> hackers do you have like a school yeah. of hackers or well, like how uh, does that work <laughs> that, uh, this uh, uh school of witchcraft and, and hackers that so we we don't really have but uh, but of course <laughs> our universities do have ict uh, faculties and uh, and actually estonian uh, um um, armed forces, if we talk about military, they are, uh, uh, we have a reserve army. So a lot of, uh, uh, lot of Estonian armed forces are actually civilists uh, who have uh, received uh, um, military training. And uh, similarly to, to other troops, also we have um, a cyber defense league, which consists of uh, uh, people who in their everyday life, they work for banks or ICT companies or or some of the uh, many uh, tech companies that, that have emerged uh, from Estonia or, 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 or who have built their uh, R&D centers in Estonia. So, so we are using uh, uh, all resources we have, and, and this is the only way to, to do it uh, in order to allocate the best expertise uh, also for, uh, for cyber defense. That's amazing. I mean, one of my my pet topics of obsession is the North Korean cyber army and the way they recruit, you know, kids who take part in mathematics competitions and they grab them and they they teach them how to code and how to hack. And I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. I mean, it is the future of warfare, isn't it? It's it's always certainly a lot cheaper than than what Russia is doing and cranking out the tanks. So the the future of warfare is is in the cyberspace, isn't it? Well, uh, and I wouldn't uh, say uh, with uh, with clear words that Russia isn't doing also the things in cyber. So so uh, but but you're correct of course saying that uh, that conventional warfare is only one way of uh, pursuing your goals uh, of influence of political power. Uh, cyber is definitely one uh, weakening your uh, your counterparts by uh, by uh, weakening their societies as as we described earlier or using energy i mean today when when the energy prices in europe uh, are uh, very high and partly uh, because of uh, of uh, russian uh, supply decreased uh, uh, this is uh, also changing the political sentiment how people uh, uh, see energy. So in a way, now it is uh, uh, easier to advocate uh, for both alternative uh, sources, but also to to say that you know let, let's just keep the the gas coming uh, uh, as long as it it uh, becomes cheaper. So in a way, if if somebody has a tool to influence you um, your behavior. As a sovereign country, uh, he has already won uh, this this particular battle, and and uh, of course, traditional warfare is is just one means, and and Russia, Russian uh, doctrine doctrine does include uh, hybrid methods. This is uh, quite open. They have quite openly been writing and, and speaking about it, so it's not a surprise for for any any European politician, I'm sure. 
Well, uh, lastly, I wanted to ask you about your political career because it was an extraordinary one. And in 2012, you became the youngest member of the Estonian government when you were appointed the Minister for Social Affairs. And then it was two years later when the Reform Party nominated you as leader and prime minister. And at the time, you were the youngest leader in the EU. So I wanted to ask, you know, after exploding onto the global stage and breaking that ceiling of being Europe's youngest leader... You know, what was that like for you? What was the pressure? And how did your fellow European leaders treat you when you entered the world stage? Did they treat you as an equal or was there a little bit of, uh, you know, you're a bit younger than us, you still have lot to, a lot to learn? Or were there any dinosaurs saying that you were too young for the job? I think it was like for uh, one week in Estonian media in the very beginning, was like, uh, because it was a surprise uh, that I became the candidate for prime minister and the, the people were not like expecting this move. They knew me as as member of government. They knew me as, as chairman of finance committee of the parliament during the uh, crisis. Uh, we had the fiscal crisis. So it wasn't like completely 100% uh, uh, new. And also the Finnish politicians, I, I knew quite well. So so being the youngest uh, was nothing negative. The only negative thing was that when I uh, ended um, my uh, uh, three years as prime minister, I was uh, uh, 37. So I, I still needed uh, uh, new challenges. Do you feel a twinge of regret that your premiership only lasted for, for three years? Were you happy with your term? If you had stayed in power longer, what would have been the top of your list for for, for what you wanted to achieve for Estonia? Now, regarding uh, whether if I could have chosen to be a year or two more in office, of course I would have. Of course I would have. It it was a job that was um, super unique in both domestically and uh, internationally, and uh, and the challenges uh, in this office uh, never end. And uh, probably as a, as a young uh, person, uh, uh, I tended to be also a little bit uh, over-ambitious. Uh, I, I know some of the older colleagues uh, have taken it much uh, slower and, and setting much uh, like easier goals for themselves. But for me, it was uh, very important that uh, during my watch, uh, Estonia will really succeed and, and in, in several uh, aspects uh, we get to the next level and and if you ask if i had plans for 2017 and and 18 and 19 then the answer is yes i did and and it's actually quite typical i actually my government uh, together like three years or my term as uh, of three years is above average in estonian politics so that's just how coalition governments work fair fair enough you talk about the ambition of your youth did you peak too soon I'm not sure if I have peaked. <laughs> I, I, I do hope that um, that uh, I still have um, uh, enough to contribute in private sector. And, and uh, I mean, a lot uh, of people have asked, uh, why didn't you continue in politics? You, I was uh, the last time I was elected was uh, uh, the term is still continuing. So I, even today or for the next. Uh, more than one year, I still have my parliament term that I could, uh, in theory, have uh, continued. Uh, and probably for the next uh, 20 years to come, 
but that I decided that this is not um, uh, the future I want for myself, and I want to I want to peak uh, using your good term uh, in in different sector. Is there an an element of of maybe personal growth about what matters to you and where you feel that the areas in which you want to make a meaningful difference, whether it's in your family life or in a smaller uh, industry where you can maybe, you know, have a little bit more independence. And particularly with you, you had a coalition government and a a whole group of different uh, priorities to try and juggle. Did you find that? Did you feel that maybe you could have made more of a difference outside of government in that sense? Well, uh, both uh, in the government and after that, I have been uh, happy with my my choices and, and uh, also happy with the results that we achieved in the three years. Uh, now, about personal growth, uh, I, I guess it, it's, a, it's a fair question and, and uh, probably it's, it's correct that, uh, that uh, you change uh, uh, both uh, when you become prime minister, when you are prime minister and uh, when you no, no longer are. Uh, these are all uh, actually very, very uh, big changes, both in in work life and and also in personal life. But uh, luckily, uh, I have I have managed to uh, live successfully also after the term, and I have now I then had one one kid. Now I have three, and uh, and I'm happily married and and uh, exercising for for Ironman. So in a way, exercising for Ironman, of course, uh, shows that I have a small midlife crisis probably that I need still need to <laughs> prove myself uh, to the world but uh, but other than it's that it's all impressive. good it's very impressive i i certainly you would never catch me doing doing an iron man uh, in a million years so all credit to you um what what are what are those changes before becoming prime minister being prime minister and then leaving prime minister behind what are those changes what has changed for you well, as trivial as it sounds, of course, the uh, weight of the responsibility, especially um, regarding the security situation, but also all sorts of uh, reforms we, we decided to to uh, do, like administrative reform. We changed the number of uh, municipalities in Estonia uh, from more than 200 to roughly 80. So uh, that change was very principal and, and uh, strengthened the municipalities a lot but it was a very difficult uh, reform to to pursue or or to to take. Um, now, um, the second part uh, of it uh, is I learned to walk very quickly uh, when I was uh, prime minister, and and you might think that this is a small detail, but actually this is a reflection of uh, of uh, how actually when you are. Uh, leader of a government uh, that everything happens uh, much faster and, and you really don't have time to to walk slowly and i this is something my, that my friends uh, still notice about i haven't changed also afterwards i still walk uh, quite quickly as, as of hurrying from one meeting so to another that's so interesting yeah, that's it. When you started that, I thought you were talking metaphorically, but no, you mean you mean physically, and that is that is a, actually a really simple but very clear illustration of how every minute of your time matters back then. And also, also you you learn to value your uh, time and your colleagues' time. Uh, our routine was uh, was the same that I learned already when I was advisor to my predecessor. Uh, 
uh, roughly eight years before becoming prime minister myself. And that was uh, every morning uh, I had uh, one hour meeting with uh, all of my closest advisors. Uh, during this hour, I, I needed to be briefed and all the main decisions that I needed to take during the day, uh, we had the chance to prepare them. Uh, this one hour had to be uh, sufficient. Uh, there were some uh, exceptions, but usually this, this had to be sufficient. And, and then during the day, uh, the day was scheduled so that the only breaks you had were uh, when uh, commuting uh, uh, at the back seat of your car from one meeting to another. So I, I, I still couldn't uh, teleport from one meeting to another. This time I still had to take. But uh, one interesting thing is also that when you're a leader of government, there is no event or no meeting uh, where you can uh, passively participate. Uh, whether you go to uh, government meetings, whether you go to uh, visit uh, somebody either uh, in Estonia or abroad, whether you attend uh, parliament uh, sessions, you are always expected to say something uh, and uh, <laughs> like hopefully also something meaningful. So, so it, it needs a lot of um, uh, preparation and, and this is something that uh, uh, you need to learn uh, very quickly uh, because yeah, becoming a prime minister could happen, uh, like I wouldn't say overnight, but uh, but it could happen in in a couple of weeks. And and every every politician, there's a saying in Estonia that if you become a minister, you you should prepare yourself also for the case of becoming prime minister. And it's it's very very correct saying. But luckily, of course, even though I was very young. Uh, I had the luxury of, of being prepared uh, uh, quite well. Uh, being member of parliament uh, helped a lot. Being member of previous government helped a lot. Uh, advising previous prime minister and and uh, and other ministers, this all contributed to to the fact that when I became actually the prime minister, uh, the job was much more familiar to me than than many of my colleagues who had uh, never been for example in in a public office outside of the parliament or uh, no no who had not held an executive position before as russia ramps up its incursion into ukraine even getting just over a dozen miles from the border with poland and therefore nato the baltic states and their security is becoming an ever increasing geopolitical priority for the western alliance sir richard dearlove reflecting on what tavi roivas had to say has this analysis to share well i think what you have to remember i mean estonia has turned very rapidly into a very sophisticated independent entity. Um, and of course, it only turned independent in oh, 91, I think. Um, well, it, I should say it regained its independence because technically it actually never lost it. Um, and in a way, I would describe Estonia as a mini state because it's, it's tiny. It's only got a population of 1.3 million. Um, but on the other hand, it is a fully fledged NATO of member, a NATO member country, and it's also um, a very enthusiastic NATO member, and, and you know, despite its smallness, a significant contributor um, to the whole NATO alliance. Um, I mean, I I think that obviously Ukraine's situation must make the Estonians pretty nervous. 
and pretty concerned. But on the other hand, I think that they make a clear distinction between themselves, who always had a more distant relationship with Moscow, and the Ukrainians, whose relationship with Moscow historically is quite different. Uh, and of course, Ukraine is not a NATO member country. So the parallels are there, but one has to be quite cautious about how um, detailed you're going to make the comparison between these two countries. But, I mean, Ukraine was fundamentally part of the Soviet Union right from the time of the Russian Revolution. Um, and of course, that's because it was considered so closely attached to Russia historically, right, going right back to the 12th, 13th centuries. Um, I mean, the Baltic republics have had a very difficult and stormy and um, violated sort of history in terms of their identity and their independence. And, you know, they've either been dominated ethnically by the Germans or by the Russians. Um, and, you know, they've struggled to retain their identity, but they've always been very much more distinct as former Baltic republics. And bear in mind, after World War One, they actually technically maintain their identity and independence um, by having representational government outside their own countries. Um, and in fact, I don't think we ever abandoned, I mean, for example, the UK and the United States never abandoned the principle of recognizing the independence of those Baltic republics. So when they separated from the Soviet Union after um, uh, the end of the Cold War, I mean, you know, their identity in a way as separate countries was already ready-made. And I mean, Estonia in particular, it's not Russian at all. I mean, it's it's, it's Finno-Ugric, so it's it's ethnically connected to Finland, um, and it was aggressively settled during Soviet times by the Russians to try, as it were, to dilute the ethnic Estonian population. Um, so, I mean, it's history is so different from that of Ukraine. I, I mean, in a way, I think one could say at the end of the Cold War, I, I was surprised, and I mean, I think many were surprised that the Russians accepted that the Baltic republics would become part of NATO. And some of us at the time thought that was pretty surprising and pretty strange, but they did. And I think it's a reflection really in the Russian mind that they regarded the Baltic republics differently. I mean, you know, in a way, it was an enforced invasion and settlement um, at the end of World War, towards the, the end of World War II. Um, and, you know, initially when they were, when Russia invaded the Baltic republics, they saw them as a sort of savior from Nazism. But of course, that didn't last very long when they, you know, discovered that they were gonna be integrated into the Soviet Union, which is effectively what happened. Yeah, I was. I mean, he said in his interview, didn't he, that you know, it's it's just not possible to establish a successful communist party in Estonia because we know what communism brought to Estonia during the last fifty years, and so 
therefore, like in Estonia, being influenced by being seen to be influenced by the Kremlin is is a huge red flag, and Russian ideology just doesn't sway uh, in in Estonia. Yeah, well, I think it, that's an extremely interesting comment because. I think it's 26% of the Estonian population are Russian speaking. And, you know, Moscow would consider, you know, it has some sort of, let's say, claim uh, or at least interest in that 25% of the population. But in practice, I think what's happened is that that 25% isn't an identifiable grouping. Um, you know, they've, as it were, absorbed more of the Estonian identity. And, you know, if they were, if there were to be, you know, a communist party, it would be seen, you know, as disloyal to the vision of Estonian identity. So I, I think that's quite a revealing comment by him, that despite this large percentage of the population, they don't naturally any longer look towards Moscow, although Moscow, of course, would feel that it had some sort of claim. I wonder also, given Estonia is so, I mean, it's so high tech, that's one of the most, that's one of the most individual sort of defining sort of characteristics of Estonia, isn't it? I was reading an article about Estonia's technological revolution, and it described the country as a millennial, um, halfway between a millennial and a startup in itself and all these sort of bold gambles in the 90s such as you know mandating that every classroom needed to have a computer and needed to be and that access to internet was declared a human right 22 years ago way before it was um you know really a sort of taken for granted everyday part of our lives and so what what do you make of the fact that you know Estonia is extremely capable in its cyber cyber capabilities, he was talking about you know these cyber rangers, which I found so interesting that they sort of simulate these war games um, on on protecting from you know possible Russian attack, but also they have a counter uh, disinformation influence program as well, and that's of course one of the one of the main ways Russia Russia tries to sow fragmentation. Uh, and dissent in a lot of EU countries? Well, I think what's extraordinary about Estonia is that you, it shows what you can do if you start off your independence more or less with a clean slate and you've got a small, I mean, small is beautiful. So they've got a relatively tiny population and right from the word go, they made this decision about you know, e-government and the online identity of their citizens. They were very careful, though, to construct it in a way that didn't sort of violate personal freedoms and personal identity. Um, and they've just really gone from strength to strength very rapidly. Um, I mean, I think it, it, it's also indicative of a country which has a very high level of education, very high level of literacy. And I mean, it, it was always even during its Soviet period, I think a highly skilled area, uh, and it, 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 it drew a lot of skilled people, um, you know, from its population that were active, you know, inside Soviet society. 
but you know they they switch very quickly and then of course if you do adopt this sort of technique of e-government and then develop it very fast you're also extremely vulnerable you know to cyber attack if you're so dependent on your electronic communications and of course they had to build their defenses in parallel and i mean that's one of the reasons why i mean i think they've become you know quite a specialist country in this particular area um and i think what i would say is they have to be sophisticated because they're sitting next to you know the russian giant the giant bear and i mean the russians also are very very clever and sophisticated in this area and i mean if you go back in terms of cold war i mean the, the sort of technical capabilities um of the kgb I, i think it was the fourth chief directorate of the kgb and their intercept capability and then the speed at which they developed their cyber warfare capabilities was pretty remarkable so in a way i, I mean estonia almost had no choice once it decided to build the sort of electronic society it then had to build very very sophisticated defenses and i think you know even having done that they are still subject to vulnerabilities and then you had those attacks on the baltic republics in i think they were 2007 2008 um which caused some pretty chaotic uh, situations there and were very much done to try to support and identify the interests of the russian uh, section of the population but in a way they really backfired because it taught the estonians what the problems the, the the extent of the threat and the problems they were facing and it just encouraged them to build even stronger and more defensively but let's make the the two basic points okay the first is that despite russian military might and as it were bravado russia is not in a good place it is in post imperial decline it has a gdp about the size of italy and getting worse it's got absolutely appalling demographics its population has shrunk by over a million in the last 12 months and the rate of fertility is way below the replacement rate for the population it's totally lacks foreign investment at the moment which it desperately needs to modernize its economy um and it has got an economy which is commodity dependent it's completely dependent on the price of gas and oil which for the moment is favorable and actually would help the russians resist any type of uh you know embargoes or 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 sanctions on the economy and so they could resist that for quite a long time but w- what i'm saying is that if you're if if russia is looking at a low carbon future for the world putin's legacy if he's beginning to think about his legacy is in his 70s if i'm right i think i think um he he has got a, a, an absolutely appalling legacy um and you know he he's in a bad place so i mean my own view on ukraine is look it's never going to be a member of nato it's a hinge between east and west 
That doesn't mean it isn't going to have a close economic relationship with the West and a close political relationship with the West, a close social relationship with the West. But to be a member of NATO is going to be damaging to NATO, frankly. And it's certainly going to, as it were, increase Russia's post-imperial anxieties. And I think what Putin is looking for is a negotiation which, as it were, recognizes this reality and perhaps changes his relationship with Germany. Because if what I'm saying about Germany in the medium, sorry, about Russia in the medium to long term is true about its, it, 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 its uh, let's say, post-imperial decline, the partnership it needs is with Germany. Germany is the one country that has that close relationship with Russia economically and politically. And it's always been a, you know, a, a major player in that respect. I think, and, and, and Germany is sort of, they're poised and it can, as it were, help Russia solve a lot of its problems. And the only other country which can do this is the Chinese. Do we really want to drive Russia into the arms of the Chinese and have a Sino-Russian axis? I would much rather see, as it were, a German-Russian axis um, and a more, as it were, compliant Russia, because we maybe have understood some of their anxieties. And, I mean, let's face it, if a hostile military alliance were trying to, as it were, position themselves in an independent Scotland, we wouldn't be too pleased in, the, in England about this development. I mean, I'm sorry to make that, it's a rather absurd parallel, but I think it has some validity. And I mean, lots of people have drawn a comparison between what happened in Cuba and the way that the Russian, the Americans reacted to Cu the Cuba crisis back in 1963. I think we should sit down and talk to the Russians. And because I think we should take their post-imperial angst seriously. And I think we should try to sit down and find out what the solution could be. And I think that, 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 that we should establish some sort of security conference with a permanent sort of Sherpa um, group that, that should try to, as it were, probe these Russian anxieties and and find a solution to them. But doesn't Putin need something concrete in order to action a climb down? And the thing is, NATO could never say to Russia, OK, we promise never to admit Ukraine. Ukraine could no, no, never make that promise either. So how do we end the standoff? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think we probably have to do it through negotiation. I mean, NATO is a defensive alliance. It's not an aggressive alliance. But on the other hand, clearly seen from the Russian point of view, that they have security worries. I think we have to try to try to look at the problem partly with Russian eyes. I mean, we, we don't talk about Russia's problems, but let's face it, Russia is in a mess. Um, and I mean, I think we have to accept that um, we don't have much alternative at the moment, but to engage them in discussion. So, I mean, I think 
Putin has a window of opportunity. Uh, he also has the clock ticking on his legacy. What is the situation for him domestically? Do you think he is in trouble? And and why so, given the fact that he and the the Kremlin have basically solidified his grip on power so that he, he, he basically is in the in the middle of a never-ending term? What is it that he's afraid of? Well, I think there is clearly significant opposition, um, although it's very effectively suppressed. Uh, we all know about Navalny and the sort of support that Navalny could attract. I think it's very much probably amongst the sort of Russian intelligentsia. But he... I think his, his situation politically probably is more fragile than it appears to us in the West. Um, and he appears strong because, you know, they've got a, such a strong grip on the media. Uh, they've got such a strong, I mean, the, the Siloviki, the, 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 the power breakers inside the regime or inside the tent, um, you know, they've been very effective at suppressing opposition. I mean, Russia, you know, is an autocracy and it's, you know, the fairness of its elections have to be questioned. Um, and I think that as I've tried to explain in terms of Russia's decline, Putin maybe is running out of time. I mean, his legacy could look awful. So in a way, you know, maybe it's an exaggeration to say last throw of the dice, but I think this is an agenda which is designed, you know, to portray him as a tough uh, Russian leader. And the Russians have always liked strong, prominent leaders who's dailing it out to the West. And, um, you know, we're going to get our own way, particularly in, you know, reasserting our influence in areas where Russia has historically been the dominant power. I mean, look, Russia, historically, since the time of Peter the Great, has set out to weaken all the nations on its immediate borders and, as it were, to undermine them and to make sure that they did not present any sort of major threat to Russia. And so sort of historically, it's a theme that goes through Russian history. And, Putin is, is, is acting in character. And, you know, why has he picked this moment? Well, possibly because he realises his own vulnerabilities, but also he could, as it were, or we could argue that the West is in a certain state of disarray. We've got a weak American president, I think. People would say that Biden is, is not a force to be reckoned with. Um, in in the way that other American presidents may have been, you know, the EU is 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 divided. You've got political change in Germany. You've got a presidential election coming up in France, which the outcome of which is clearly uncertain. You've got political instability in Italy. Um, I mean, if you look around, things, you know, you you can see why the Russians might think, great, this is a moment when we can make our move. The last thing I wanted to ask, I don't know about you, but I was very interested in that little tidbit that Tavi Roivas gave us, that one of the things he learned as prime minister was how to walk very, very quickly, because every minute of the day 
was important and one that many people needed him for, meetings and briefings, etc. Uh, you can't dawdle when you're prime minister. So I wanted to ask you, Richard, when you were head of MI6, presumably you also had quite a lot of your plate uh, on work days. Did you dawdle or do you have quite a quick trot? I have a pretty quick trot and I never dawdle. And you really don't escape, you know. It's like um, being uh, permanently tagged, you know, even when you go home, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of sitting there thinking, is the phone going to ring this evening? Um, no, particularly in the crisis or even when work is going on relatively normally, uh, uh, it's a very intensive uh, experience to be in that type of position. It's very exciting. Uh, but on the other hand, it's tough. <laughs> I imagine. What was the most chaotic part of your ten tenure? What was the, the, the busiest, most demanding of your time? Oh, without doubt, the events around 9-11. 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it turned my life upside down. I mean, both my personal and professional life, it turned upside down. Uh, and it went on and on and on and on. I mean, after 9-11, you know, life was not quite the same again. Professional life, that is. And of course, it led on to the invasion of, of Afghanistan and then uh, war in Iraq and, 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 you know, it was a very tough and difficult period. A podcast for another day. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that one. <laughs> Thanks for joining us here on One Decision. Let us know your thoughts. What are the key decisions where you are that have shaped your world? Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at One Decision Pod and Facebook at One Decision Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. From me and the team, see you next time. <laughs>